Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to all of our wonderful guests. So today on the episode, we're going to be talking about pudental neuralgia. My guest today is Stephanie Prendergast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I start here pretty much with everybody, which is, you know, tell us a little bit um, about you and what got you so interested in pudental neuralgia. So I am a pelvic floor physical therapist. Crazy to say that I've been practicing for 20 years now. When did that happen? Um, And I became involved in pudental neuralgia pretty early on, very early in my career. I was working with a urologist in San Francisco, and we were treating a lot of patients with pelvic pain, basically all patients with pelvic pain. And we started noticing that people were coming in with this diagnosis of pudental neuralgia. And we we quickly learned that there was not a lot of treatment options for these patients in the United States. And at that time, patients were actually going over to France in groups of 10 or so, and treatment involved pudendal nerve blocks and a decompression surgery. The surgery was different than it is today in that they severed both the sacrotuber-sacrospinous ligaments. They transposed the nerve into um, fatty tissue of the obturator internus. And the instructions post-op were bed rest for six months. Now, as any physical therapist listening to this, it was kind of, it was shocking to me. And I was really surprised that A, physical therapy just wasn't even a factor for these patients. And as you can imagine with what I just described, the level of disability that people were experiencing before and after the surgery was pretty significant. Um, Over the course of the next five years, we became one of the non-surgical treatment options in the U.S., Also during that time, a few surgical options in the U.S. became available, but physical therapy still wasn't as involved as I wanted to see it be. Um, Looking back, I also think at that time, PTs were just starting to get involved in pelvic pain. We may have been more known for incontinence and postpartum, and it wasn't as robust as it is today. So we can see why patients had so many challenges back then. Wow. Wow. I did not know that, that that was like the approach. And I'm sitting here and I'm just, you know, if people could see my face, my jaw's like, oh my God, you know, like that should be, you know, so the way I think of it is like, that should be like last resort. What can we do conservative management before we get into, you know, severing things that like once it's done, right? Like there's no going we back need from those that. ligaments and we learn that. But yes. Wow. Okay. So yeah, so obviously this came out of a great need because you were seeing uh, a population uh, coming in with this. Now, this is this is kind of like a tricky, a very tricky diagnosis. So I want to dive a little bit deeper. You know, we, we've sort of said pudental neuralgia, you know, we've said a lot of terms and people are like, what is this? So maybe um, we could start off by, you know, what what is pudental neuralgia? Like what's the current definition of it? Mm-hmm. 
So pudendal neuralgia is characterized as a neuropathic pain, pelvic pain syndrome. And this nerve has a lot of responsibility. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how anyone's normal when we really talk about everywhere it goes. So when we look at the sensory distribution of the pudendal nerve, it innervates the majority of the penis, the clitoris, the perineum, the anus, and the skin in part, part of the labia, part of the scrotum. The motor features of the nerve go to the majority of the pelvic floor muscles, so also critical for bowel and bladder control. And then the nerve also has this little third feature, which is autonomic fibers. No other peripheral nerve in the body has autonomic sensory and motor fibers. And so when patients start to get symptoms of true pudendal neuralgia, it's shooting stabbing pain in the territory of the nerve, but there also can be an interruption in bladder and bowel function because this nerve is involved in things that we don't even think about, which is maintaining continence and even the ability to evacuate when we want to. This behaves different than other nerve injuries, and nerve injuries are different than muscle injuries, and we can't emphasize this enough. It's not just like a basic pelvic floor dysfunction. Because of the neuropathic features and the autonomic features on top of that, the pain can be very severe. It can have accompanying vasomotor of things such as dilating pupils and racing heart, and it is a difficult thing for patients to deal with. But I think understanding that the treatment process is going to be a little different for this because of these unique features, I think, can really help everyone better understand it and feel a little bit less scared about the process. Yeah, thank th thank you for sharing that. And and I guess just um, to clarify, or maybe you know, just go over some you know quick word definitions. So when we say sensory fibers, we're talking about like the information that goes to the brain that's like, you know, interpreting temperature and touch and vibration and compression, right? So it's something that we're sensing in our bodies, whereas motor is more like movement and like instructions going from the brain, going from the nerve to the muscles and to the various organs that it innervates. And then autonomic just means that part of our nervous system that's automatic. Like we don't control that piece of it. So just to give a quick kind of, you know, definition to those things. What I'm wondering is, you know, because there's so many of these different functions of this nerve, you know, and I see this in my, you know, I don't see this as often in my practice, but I have seen it come up where somebody comes in and they like, I have, or I think I have pudental neuralgia. Um, and kind of what I've read about pudental neuralgia is like, you know, there's no, like it, it follows kind of a criteria of elimination. If I'm, if I'm, you know, like there's no clear, like you must have, or I think Maybe you can there, help there. me out here. I think there's some criteria that you have to have in order for it to be considered pudental neuralgia, but why are so many people self-diagnosing? I guess that's where the disconnect is. It's such a great question because you're right. A lot of people think they have pudental neuralgia, and I think some providers are like, well, what is pudental neuralgia? And as we go back to the anatomy to be true pudendal neuralgia, it has to have neuropathic features, so shooting, stabbing pain in the territories that I mentioned. Now, this nerve is also characterized by pain with sitting. And so a lot of times people who have pain with sitting think they have pudendal neuralgia. But in actuality, the reasons why they can't sit comfortably or where it hurts when they sit is outside of the territory of the nerve. 
Maybe it's achy, not stabbing. And so you can kind of look at it that way. Now, when I mentioned the surgeries in France a little earlier on, there's our colleagues in Nantes who have done the most research on pudendal neuralgia. They published criteria for what pudendal neuralgia is in 2008. And to this day, that seems to be kind of like the gold standard under, understanding of it. And it basically is a clinical diagnosis. So they themselves have demonstrated through their research that things that they used to use to try to diagnose entrapment, electrophysiological testing and imaging, does not, does not pan out. So it's a clinical diagnosis. We can make it in the clinic. Listening to the patient's symptoms, shooting, stabbing pain in the territory of the nerve, it's usually worse with sitting. Part of their criteria is it doesn't wake the patient at night. Um, another criteria of essential is that it doesn't have a sensory disturbance, which is still a little confusing what that means. And then they said that it is reduced by a pudendal nerve block. So if you put an anesthetic in the nerve and the pain goes away, then that's considered pudendal neuralgia. Now, do you have to have all of those criteria? Like, is it because not everybody's I'm just thinking not everybody just goes mm -hmm. to have a nerve block just to be like, let's confirm that this is, in fact, it. So are all criteria required for it to be a true pudental neuralgia or can you have the four minus the nerve block? Right. So I don't believe you need a nerve block to diagnose pudental neuralgia. And I have issues with that as the criteria. I'm just reporting what their criteria is because they used to use, for example, pudental nerve blocks before an epidural was a thing. And if you inject the nerve and anesthetize it properly, everything that that nerve goes to is going to be numb. And that can include if there's pelvic floor muscle pain, if there's connective tissue pain. And so I think that it's a little bit, you know, it excludes, it doesn't just mean that there's a nerve problem if your pain goes away with a block. There can be multiple other factors there too. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, clarifying that, right? Because, you, you know, if, if there's a, if it's being a clinical, you know, diagnosis and, you know, a physiotherapist is trying to figure out like, okay, is this, is this, or is this not, you know, it's not really in our scope of practice to, we don't do needles. So, you know, does that mean then that we can't be like, mm, this probably is, you know, if we don't have that uh, particular, particular feature. So, so when we talk about diagnosis, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, again, like what kind of things are you sort of looking for that's really, um, uh, you know, maybe outside of the criteria that you sort of mentioned, like how do you go about diagnosing it or how are you seeing it being diagnosed nowadays? And that's a great question because we, as physical therapists who need to develop an assessment and treatment plans, we need to really look at why does this person have these symptoms? What are their symptoms? And then what are the objective findings that are causing them? And I also want to separate out for now, and I know we'll probably get to this again later, pudendal neuralgia versus pudendal nerve entrapment. And that's the big question on everyone's mind is once they have these symptoms, they're trying to figure out if they need surgery or not. And I think we can get into this as we troubleshoot through some of these other things that we're going to discuss, but really there's no way to tell if there's entrapment or not. And so basically everything is pudendal neuralgia until you have surgery that confirms there was an entrapment. And obviously not everyone is getting to that point and they shouldn't be getting to that point. So we really want to take a look back and this will tie into like some of the entrapment cases is most people who have pudendal neuralgia may develop it insidiously over time. And there's a 
four different categories of general causes of it. And these can be tension injuries, such as constant straining with constipation or a prolonged second stage of labor, for example. There can be compression injuries, like horseback riding, cycling, people who sit too long. There can be almost always with the insidious development, we see these biomechanical things, that there is a reason why their nerve is compromised, and it usually has something to do with the pelvic floor, the pelvic girdle, and their neuromuscular patterns. Now, the next category is surgical insult. And I know one of your questions to me was, do we think pudendal neuralgia is on the rise? And I would say that, unfortunately, because there has been so many complications during those years that mesh was being used, that can be a surgical insult that has caused probably a true entrapment by something happening during the surgery that compromised the nerve. And so when we're really looking at a patient's history, if someone's telling me that they developed pudendal neuralgia after a reconstructive surgery for prolapse, I'm thinking more along the lines of entrapment. Every other case of pudendal neuralgia is maybe more pudendal neuralgia, and we need to develop and figure out what the impairments are that are causing it and then treat that effectively. Um, so hopefully that clarifies a little bit of, of those two categories. Yeah. And I, and I was wondering to, you know, to myself, I mean, because I recently had a client kind of be like, well, you know, I've pain with sitting. So, you know, like, I think I have pudental neuralgia, right? They're going to Google, they're looking at their symptoms and they're just going, yeah, this must be it because I fit so much of the sort of like symptoms that are being, you know, sort of, uh, sort of described. And, you know, we're talking about diagnosis and, you know, and, you know, is it entrapped? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know that there's a really good test for that other than when they actually go in there and and look to see for that. Um, so it was really nice that you made that sort of, A, that was confirmation to me that I was like, I don't think there's a test for that specifically. Um, and that the rest is likely more pudental neuralgia. Um, when you think about it in terms of like prevalence um, in sort of your practice, like how many people percentage-wise have had true entrapment? So I was, true entrapment is harder. Um, that's, that's much more difficult. There's one paper that estimates about 1% of the population in the U.S. Okay. have it, but that's the only thing I could find on actual prevalence. But I will say from clinical experience, I do not believe that the majority of people have entrapment because if in my brain, the way I think about it, if it's truly entrapped, I'm not going to be able to do much for them as a physical therapist. And so I think that people, again, because there's a surgery tied to this, get concerned and worried that they all, that they do have entrapment. Um, and I think the majority of cases, they're not, it's not true entrapment. And there's so much we can do from the conservative end and not need to get to surgery. Yeah. Yeah. And we're definitely going to, you know, definitely um, tie into that. I guess my other question is, um, you know, related to sitting, because this seems to be the thing like that people sort of, you know, they sort of go to, okay, there's something with my pudental nerve because I, it sits when I hurt. Um, is, is the pudental nerve being, you know, quote unquote, compressed in, in sitting? Like when you think about the track that that nerve takes, um, you know, why do you, why is the pain with sitting kind of, why do you see that clinically? So there's usually a number of impairments that patients present with that involve neural tension, again, which is different than entrapment, which we'll talk about. Um, there's 
muscle compromise and there's connective tissue dysfunction as well as bone and joint dysfunction, if you will. When you sit, the pudendal nerve gets compressed. In normal situations, if none of those impairments are present, you can sit comfortably. If there are connective tissue restrictions around the nerve, or if the nerve can't move, glide, and slide to get into that 90 degrees of hip flexion to sit on a chair, or if when they do sit, that lengthens the piriformis, piriformis and obturator run together, those muscles are tight, then they start smushing the nerve in that position. Any one of those things can make it hard to sit because of the different impairments, and then you basically are compressing something that's already mechanically compromised. And you can get pain. Some people may have clitoral pain with sitting. Almost always men have perineal pain with sitting. Um, Sometimes there can be involvement around the anus. It just depends on where the nerve is kind of getting stuck, if you will, along its course. And then sitting is going to exacerbate many of the associated impairments, which is why it's so hard to do. Right. Okay. Thanks for, um, thank you for sharing that. Um, so you've already kind of mentioned the typical ways that, you know, um, that people can, you know, typically how somebody develops, um, pudental neuralgia. So I don't think we necessarily need to go, um, down that route, but let's, let's dive into, um, treatment, um, because, I worry that there's a lot of, you know, like when you see people going to forums and Googles, like you, you know, you hear so much um, negative, um, you know, high failure rates of treatments and people seeking out, you know, this, that to, to resolve the issue. Um, Maybe we could speak to like why there may be some, uh, why people are sort of having negative experiences with uh, treatment of this and like what would be, or what have you seen to be a much better approach? Yeah, this is a, one of my favorite questions. <laughs> and this is something, I mean, one of the most interesting parts of our job is, is the strategy and helping people figure out how to get out of this. And as you're mentioning right now in 2020, a quick Google search with these symptoms is going to get you into a pudental forum. And quickly, you're going to learn that pelvic floor physical therapy, nerve blocks, and neuromodulator medications are all part of the treatment plan. And so many times people come to us who have failed and say, well, I had PT, and I went on neuromodulators, and I had blocks, and none of that worked. Why am I still here? And it's not just about those three things. It's about really taking a look at what are someone's reasons for having pudental neuralgia. All pudental neuralgia is, is a a descriptor of where the pain is. It does not tell us why that pain is there. So if we just do a bunch of blanket stuff, that's not going to work. I want to encourage people to know that a lot of times because of the neuropathic features and because so many different things can cause their pudental neuralgia, there are going to be treatment plan hiccups medications aren't going to be tolerated. The block isn't going to work. This is the norm. This is not the exception. And I feel like so many people think, oh my gosh, why me? Why aren't I getting better? Why is this not working? And it really takes a coordinated effort for the way that we approach it between physical therapy and medical management. And it can't just be in isolation. We really need to, from a PT perspective, understand the bodies and what what is causing their symptoms. And that can involve connective tissue issues. It can involve neural tension, as I mentioned, 
pelvic floor dysfunction is almost always involved. Obturator internus dysfunction is involved. And pelvic girdle neuropathic neuromuscular patterns are altered whenever somebody has pain, and especially this type of pain, when it changes the way our muscles function. Um, and I think you and I had chatted a little bit. I can give some examples of why things may not work and like why the order may be important. Yeah, so that would be great. Somebody, okay, cool. So sometimes, I mean, people go to a pain management doctor and their expectations may be to really just take care of the entire problem. When in actuality, pain management is there to manage pain. Again, while, for example, physical therapy is taking its time to do its course. But if you have somebody that has pelvic floor dysfunction, all this pain, and we're given gabapentin, cymbalta, amitriptyline, effective neuromodulators, people may have the expectation that that's going to completely take away their pain. That is not what these drugs do. And I find that more often than not, patients are confused about how long they need to be on them, what dose they need to be on, and why. And really, when we're talking about the central nervous system consequences of a pain condition, these medications are going to reduce those consequences, which may allow other therapies to be more effective. But by themselves, it's not going to help. And a lot of times people abandon them because they don't get the expected response that they think they're going to. And then we can sometimes need to revisit that when they come back into physical therapy. From the physical therapy point of view, we also look at all of these impairments, and if somebody goes for a pudendal nerve block, the same way these medications may not help their physical symptoms the way they want them to, a block probably isn't going to be effective past the period the anesthetic is in effect if all the reasons why that nerve is irritated are still present. So in my mind, that makes us as PTs a very important part of the treatment plan, but it has to be the right physical therapy. There aren't protocols for this. So we need to do a very thorough objective exam and look at what we can do both with manual therapy and home exercises to basically help the body reorganize itself and make that nerve able to slide, glide, and move. One of the biggest limitations I see with physical therapy is sometimes pelvic floor PTs are only given 30 minutes. And during those 30 minutes, they only do internal work. Now, if there's a complete neuromuscular problem, that involves the way that they're walking and the way that their lumbar spine moves, the way their hips move, just day-to-day -day life is going to continue to irritate the nerve. All that pelvic floor physical therapy addressing that pelvic floor is not going to fix the rest of this. And so a lot of times we got to look at the previous PT and why it failed. So I can give an example um, of a, a more recent case that, that I'm working with, and it's the person who actually connected us. And so I find this interesting because she's somebody who has, I'll describe her symptoms, her case, and what we did in what order and why. So this is somebody who developed hormonally mediated vestibulodynia as a result of being on birth control pills. She also had a history of ankle and knee and hip issues on the same side of her body where she also developed pudendal neuralgia. So if we look at this particular case, she already has one pelvic pain syndrome, which is the vestibulodynia, and likely because of the orthopedic issues she's had on their left side, and the pelvic floor dysfunction from the vestibulodynia, she now has left-sided pudendal neuralgia. So we start going through physical therapy, and it, it's obvious that there is repetitively stuff going on on the left side. When we had her try to stand on one leg, you can do it on the right side where there is not pudendal neuralgia, couldn't stand on the left leg. This is a 30-year-old person, so that, that shouldn't be the case. 
when you see that type of abnormality, just walking around is triggering her pelvic floor and her pelvic girdle to irritate the pudendal nerve. So the pudendal nerve pain was significant upon palpation. Every time I touched the pudendal nerve, we got shooting, stabbing pain throughout the pelvic floor. She was tolerating the manual therapy, but that nerve really wasn't improving. So enter nerve block number one, where there was anesthesia after the block. She was numb in some of the areas where she had pain, which is what we're looking for. And then the nerve is in a sore over the next visits. But the pain is still not significantly reduced, but I'm happy the objective finding of palpating that nerve is no longer as irritated. During this time, we're working on neuromuscular re-education and trying to get the right leg to act more symmetrically, but it was taking some time. And in turn, the nerve became irritated again because the exercises that we were doing were not enough to reduce some of the overactivity of the obturator internus muscle. So then we came to a cross point. Do we do a pudendal nerve block again, or do we consider something like pelvic floor Botox? Because the manual therapy and her compliance are not reducing the symptoms enough. And again, it's just day-to-day life is still aggravating her. She's somebody who can't tolerate neuromodulators, so medications were not an option. So we decided to go with the second pudendal nerve block. It did not do anything. And this can happen. So there really wasn't the same numbness in the territory of the nerve. So then there's the question of, was this even an accurate block? Maybe not, because there wasn't even numbness during the period the anesthetic was in effect. Back into the physical therapy treatment room, um, upon internal palpation, slightly asking this patient to externally rotate her leg, the obturator internist way over responds. And this is after months of neuromuscular re-education. The nerve is still behaving like this. So now it's time for pelvic floor Botox. That reduced the pain immediately in five days by 60%. And because she had done so much back work on the neuromuscular re-education already, now we stand a chance of having that muscle removed, the nerve pain is going down, and we can continue to rehab in a way that's probably going to be more effective now. But if we had done Botox at the beginning when the nerve was still irritated, that probably wouldn't have done anything. If we had done Botox or the nerve blocks when the pelvic girdle was still dysfunctional, she probably isn't going to get better. And so when I talk about strategy and sequence, we've got to really think about what we're doing and why, what we want the outcome to be, and then how are we going to rehab the rest of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I have some, I have some follow-up questions to that. So, um, more from, so going to kind of the assessment piece. So, you know, you're looking, you're screening low back range of motion. So you're looking to see how, how that's moving. Are there any restrictions? You know, is she sort of feeling it symmetrically moving? Um, obviously you're looking at your, you know, you're looking at the pelvic girdle and how that's, you know, moving and do any, you know, I'm assuming, well, I shouldn't assume. Are you doing any of sort of the pain provocative tests to see like if there's any anything showing up there, hip range of motion, then kind of looking at the pelvic floor? So, And you mentioned ankle and knee. So were you looking at those pieces as well to see how those yeah. are moving? Okay. Because all of this is attached to the pelvic floor. And so for physical therapists, if someone's describing a significant orthopedic history of ankle and knee and hip things on one side, and they've got pudendal neuralgia on that side, we have to look at the whole chain and really figure out, you know, I look at pudendal neuralgia, the same thing as like patellofemoral or whatever. There is a reason 
why that part of the body is under stress. And so for somebody like this, it was very important to address all of that. Whereas if another patient has pudendal neuralgia, let's say because they have endometriosis and they have a million yeast infections and UTIs, all of this biomechanical stuff may not be as important for that patient. But if there is, you know, just listen to what they're telling you. If there's other signs of orthopedic dysfunction, why would this be any different? Yeah. So then my, so, okay. So that's sort of the assessment piece. Now you mentioned um, like neuromuscular retraining and, and I want to be cognizant that there may be clients who are listening to this and are like, I have no idea what she's saying. Um, you know, these are were big words. So maybe um, would you mind sharing like a couple of examples of what, what type of exercises, like what, what does neuromuscular retraining, what would that look like? from a client's perspective? So a lot of times, let's keep in mind, many people have been through back pain and they hear, oh, it's all about strengthening your core. I mean, that is important, but we also need the right muscles to recruit at the right time. And so what can happen, for example, especially with pudendal neuralgia, because it's very, it sits on top of the obturator internus nerve. So more often than not, that muscle is always involved. And what will happen is as we walk, for example, we're supposed to use a particular muscle called the gluteus medius to stabilize. And if other muscles are becoming more active, then the muscles that are supposed to be taking care of us become weaker. And then the muscles that should not be helping us advance become tight, painful, and just overreact. They just overreact. And if the nerve is sitting on top of that muscle, you're going to get nerve pain. And so what we had to do is try to turn that muscle off with manual therapy. But we also have to be careful here because stretching, nerves don't like to be stretched. So if we need to treat a muscle that's dysfunctional and this pudendal nerve is by it, stretching things like the piriformis or the hamstring are going to irritate the nerve. So we have to use things like manual therapy and foam rolling to try to calm the muscle down. And as you heard, eventually Botox for this patient, because I think there was too many years of biomechanical things that just triggered her. Um, and then that way, then we can start to strengthen the muscle groups that we want to be strong while down training the muscles that are reacting and shouldn't be. And then that's going to help reduce the symptoms. Okay. So, so basically calming down the muscle, not necessarily through stretching. Um, we say like manual therapy techniques. Now I'm kind of curious from, the, and, and so now f flipping quickly to the PT side, you know, for, for newer physios or physios who, you know, perhaps haven't uh, worked a lot in, in with pudental neuralgia, what, you know, are you doing like, um, like a contract relax type of um, where you're palpating the muscle, um, you know, what, what does that look like? So let's just stick with the obturator. So from the outside, there's parts of the obturator internus tendon and the piriformis muscle that can easily be addressed in sideline with myofascial release. We also use a lot of cupping, especially in the connective tissue zones around the pudendal nerve that can really help the fascia start to move and glide and slide and create more space for the nerve. So for example, we may also do cupping over the obturator intranus piriformis in states where people can dry needle. That's also an effective way of hitting the exterior structures. And then internally, we use a combination of compression myofascial release techniques. I don't use contract and relax 
repetitively because that can stimulate things in the wrong direction. But we can move the leg into varying degrees of internal and external rotation while we're doing the manual therapy to try to loosen the internal parts of the muscle. And usually the combination of the external and the internal will reduce these impairments in people. And again, I like knowing that there's medical options in case we get stuck. Yeah. Um, Okay. I want to just touch upon or ask about um, where does, like, does central sensitization play a role in this? Like, and how do you sort of work with that piece? Yeah, so central sensitization is involved in these cases clearly for many reasons. A, this is a neuropathic pain condition. B, there's autonomic fibers, which are part of the nervous system. And this persists in many patients for way longer than three months. So central sensitization is important to address. I am in the camp that the pharmacologic options are useful for that. And if people can tolerate the medications, they understand why they're on them, that can help the central nervous system. But really treating the central nervous system involves getting rid of the pain generators. And there's a lot of discussion right now in the physical therapy world about not doing manual therapy. And I am concerned that some people have gone to a completely hands-off approach. I do not believe that's going to work for this patient population. I'm a manual therapist. At certain points in time, manual therapy may not be the right approach for these patients if it is triggering more pain, if they can't tolerate it. In those cases, sometimes they need medical management first, pudendal nerve blocks, pharmacologic options, those types of treatments to be able to tolerate the manual therapy. Sometimes manual therapy may not be appropriate at all, in which case some of the more advanced medical management things like neuromodulators and higher level pain management may be the more appropriate thing for that patient. We also can do a lot of education as physical therapists and address central sensitization through patient education, pain science education, etc. But I don't believe if they've got a compromised pelvis that that alone is going to get them sitting again comfortably. So I think we can employ things that will help the nervous system, including treating the pain and education. And then again, I really do rely on our medical colleagues when we're getting very complicated, long-standing pain cases that need to be undone. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for for sharing that. I mean, there, the, uh, you know, there is a lot of discussion um, you know, about, you know, the biopsychosocial model, um, of approaching care. And I think sometimes it's believed that like the bio part is like the manual therapy part is, is, you know, shouldn't be, you know, or shouldn't be included to the extent that, that it is. And I think, um, what you're saying is, you know, there are probably appropriate times and appropriate, um, ways to use it. Um, and then the explanations that we give surrounding of like why why these things help and why they work, right? Um, so I was curious to see what uh, what your perspective is, especially as it relates to um, you know this population. Um, do can we talk about success stories? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Because I just, you know, I just 
I just feel like, you know, if somebody's been able to address their situation and they're living a life that they want to live, they may not perhaps be going online and sharing it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it's, you know, it's much easier to share it when things are not going right. Um, you know, and you've obviously been doing this for a long time. And I want to make sure that, you know, there are discussions around success stories and that like things can help. Um, and maybe just also addressing like, how do we deal with sort of healing isn't a um, linear thing, you know, what do we do when we hit plateaus and what do we, how do we, you approach flare ups and how do you talk to your patients about that part on their healing journey? Sorry, that was like three questions literally just jumbled together. But they're all related. No, I totally see. I can see how your brain is working. <laughs> I, I agree. Um, to start with the success story issue, and, and you touched upon this, I, I don't know any patient that isn't traumatized and benefited by the forum. So they do find that it's helpful in getting the diagnosis and whatnot. But hearing and seeing other people's struggles really is upsetting because everyone's like, what if that's me and how do we not have that happen? I think one of the things that's been more prominent lately that has really helped people get through the treatment process is some of these meditative practices and resiliency. It's going to take resiliency to help get better. And now, especially because of the autonomic features of the pudendal nerve, meditation and calming strategies are really important for this patient population. And they actually stand a great chance of helping people reduce some of the anxiety and pain associated with this because of that autonomic component of the nerve. So lately, I feel like people are coming in with a higher level of tolerance almost to deal with their issues because of these additional strategies that I really want to encourage people to use and do because it will help the process. Um, As far as success stories, we do publish them on our blog, and I'm about to do some live interviews now that everybody's on Zoom with some patients at all different phases of this to help let people have some hope that this can be them too. Um, And I'm missing, I think, the third part of your question. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. So the third part was like, because treatment isn't linear, you know, how how do you talk about and address things like flare-ups or plateaus? Flare-ups are going to happen, and that's just inevitable. Um, We want to neutralize fear and make them less scary. People can usually remember that they've been through a flare-up and they got through it, and this isn't their every day, which is easy to go there and think it's your every day, but we try to remind people, you know, why, and we try to understand why did they flare. Sometimes it's quite obvious, like, sitting too long or I changed my chair, but because of the autonomic features, sometimes you can't put a pinpoint on it and the nerves can have delayed reactions to things and they're very sensitive to our stress. And so stress is important here and keeping our stress reduced. When people get stuck in the treatment plan plateau, um, I don't know if one good thing out of COVID, nothing is good out of COVID, but there is a lot more virtual options for people. We're online, a lot of other specialists are online, and I think people have more access to care than they did prior, and hopefully that will help troubleshoot the treatment plans. 
I find for me that consulting with people, most people now do have a pelvic floor physical therapist that we can at least work with to help them troubleshoot why their patient isn't getting better. But I think a lot of times things just get overlooked. Like there's always more medical options. There's always something you can change in the physical therapy plan, the home program. There's things that you can do. So if you are stuck or you're not getting better, think about what we can change and who can you work with to help you get past those challenges. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think when we're dealing with a, with a pain, um, with the persisting pain conditions, um, that as therapists, I think certainly um, having colleagues and, and mentors to, to reach out to, um, I think is crucial when working with this population because sometimes we get, you know, our brains, as beautiful and as wonderful as they can be, can sometimes also get stuck in its own biases and its own perspectives that, you know, like, it's not like we're intentionally putting on blinders on either side. It's just sometimes we just can't access other parts of our brain because we're stressed or, you know, whatever sort of the circumstances are. So, you know, I, I feel like having a community or having somebody that um, you can reach out to be, to, to sort of be like, okay, like, here's what I've been working on. Here's the presentation. Like, what am I missing? You know? And sometimes it's just like an extra, you know, brain or an extra set of, you know, eyes can sometimes really help unlock that or at least like talk things through. So it gives our brains the opportunity to have a light bulb and be like, oh, you know, why don't I try this? Right. Um, and that's such a good point too, that I want to bring up. And you, it's not even just that people can get stuck in their own brains because we do and we can, but I don't think most people realize how hard it is for pelvic floor PTs to become pelvic floor PTs. And I was mentioning this yesterday for World PT Day, but a lot of physical therapists have to take their own time and money and go take classes and learn how to do things and may not have been afforded the opportunity I had, which is to see the same thing over and over and over again from day one. And so I am happy to share what we know if we can make your jobs easier. Um, my company's very open. We are doing mentoring and the online things because I think the repetition and the exposure has made, put us in a different situation. And the benefit of working in an interdisciplinary clinic is different than a lot of people struggling on their own. And so it's okay to ask for help and we can't know everything. And even compared to five years ago, I'm treating differently now. And so it's, it's, we need to really support each other because we are self-directed learners as public floor PTs and there aren't as much research and protocols and things to help guide us. So really talking to people who had maybe a little more experience or, you know, I've encountered this before, I think is a good way to go if you do get stuck. Absolutely. I know PTs and patients listen to your podcast, so we just want to acknowledge all sides of this. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, we want to try to do the best that we can to help somebody live their best, right? Living a Better Life podcast, right? So, you know, really it's about bringing perspectives and different um you know, different focuses, both for clients listening to be, you know, and hopefully they're seeing there's more than one way. So if you are stuck, it's not like that there's a problem necessarily, like there's not a problem necessarily with perhaps the, the therapist that you're working with. It's just, they might, 
you might need something else. Like you might need something in addition to, um, and it certainly doesn't mean there's something wrong with you as the client that like you're not responding the way that you were hoping to. So I think that, you, you know, you were talking about that strategy and sequence that's, um, you know, super, super important. Mm-hmm. Um, if there is any advice you could give to PTs, you know, starting on this, on this journey, um, especially, you know, if they're interested in pudental neuralgia or, um, you know, uh, neuropathies related to like pelvic pain, you know, what would, you know, what would some advice be? Like if you were talking to yourself 20 years ago, like what would you be saying to yourself now? Ask so many questions, which is what I did, and maybe be a little less combative than I think I was in my earlier years, where I was really arguing with surgeons about why don't you think those ligaments matter, and why is there no PT, and, you know, collaboration, I think, (laughs) is an an advisable way to go. Oh, the younger me was something. Um, But (laughs) I do think, um, you know, people are willing to to talk to us as PTs. And I think really making alliances with your medical colleagues, really making alliances with other PTs, and just asking so many questions and asking yourself questions. Why? Why are you doing what you're doing? We always have a reason for doing what we're doing. And I think everybody should why am I doing this manual therapy technique? What am I expecting to happen after this visit? What do I think is going to happen after four visits? Short and long-term goals. And if you don't know, just ask. Someone probably knows the answer. Follow-up question. Um, because you brought this up initially about, you know, how PTs, you know, have 30 minutes and they're trying to do as much as they can. And, and obviously the U.S., medical system is way different than the Canadian system. So, you know, not, you know, putting insurance coverage and all that part aside, you know, um, how have you structured do or do you structure time in your day to think about your client files? Like, how do you, how do you fit it all in? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes not very well. (laughs) Right. I think going back to an assessment, you know, what am I intending to do and why I think will help people guide themselves through the process. Um, We are set up to have time in the day to to do case management and things like that. I know everybody isn't afforded that opportunity. And so I think knowing your limitations, if you can't help somebody in the structure that you're in, you know, discuss that with them, tell them why maybe see if they can go to somebody else. But yes, there are so many issues with healthcare, especially in the U.S. And most pelvic floor PTs that are pain specialists are not taking insurance, which means we are treating a very select group of people. And not everybody can do that. Um, So again, then we look back to the medical management aspects and things like neuromodulators are often covered and these other pain management strategies that can still help if they don't have access to or can't do the physical therapy. But knowing our own limitations is important. And for us, as we manage people all over the country, all over the world, you know, we get stuck sometimes because we can't get them some of the things that I'm describing. Right. So then we've got to figure out what we can do and less focus on what we can't. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Because I think it's important to, to, to acknowledge that, you know, not every situation and circumstance is going to be the most um, ideal. Um, I know that, you know, I like to 
give myself a little bit of time to like review files, like before the next day to be just kind of start to think about, you know, what is it that I want to, what are some things I may want to try and why? So depending on what feedback they're giving me um, based on their treatment plan, it's like either, okay, either the things, the line of thinking that I'm doing is moving in the right direction or not, but I sort of have, I try to have like kind of ideas sort of preset so that, you know, when they come in, I'm not scrambling in my mind to think about like what's, what's sort of next, right? So it's sort of listening to um, what they're saying and then taking that piece and seeing, okay, what's, what's the next best thing that we should be working on here? Um, That's a great approach. Preparedness. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I'm not a, you know, I could never be an ER doctor. I, I'm not a like, you know, slick of the moment, like know what to do. I like, I'm, I'm, I'm a research based person. I like to take my time to think about things and I like to <laughs> be prepared. Hence why, you know, I interview all of my people before the podcast to be like, okay, you know, having an idea of what this is going to look like. Um, that's just the way I like to do it. Um, okay. You mentioned um, some videos that you're going to be doing on some, you know, patients along their journeys. I'm really curious um, where people will be able to access that information. Um, should they be looking for that? So we, we have a pudendal neuralgia resource guide on our blog right now that includes important links, blogs, webinars. We are on YouTube. So there's videos about all of this on there. Um, and we're excited that in a few weeks, we are launching an online Pudendal course for patients. And so what Liz and I have encountered doing digital health since March is we literally are talking to people all around the world and we find ourselves repeating ourselves over and over again. Um, a lot of what I said here, we're taking these things and expanding them into modules for patients that hopefully will get them as far as they can on their own. And especially when some people are just in total lockdown right now. In order to see this, um, please follow us on social media. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Pelvic Health. We also have a Facebook page, and every Thursday we publish a blog. If you would like to make sure that you're in the know, you can sign up to receive the blog. And as we get closer to launch, all of this information will be in there. Amazing. And uh, for people who are listening, um, there will be links in the show notes to all of these places where you'll be able to access the social media um, and uh, that information so you can stay, you know, stay up to date. Um, and I just wanted to quickly talk about your book as well, because uh, I, you wrote a book. It's so maybe you could <laughs> tell us a, a book. <laughs> you could tell us a little bit about that. I sometimes forget we wrote a book. <laughs> it's called, <laughs> it's called Pelvic Bait Explained. Um, and it was published in 2016. And we really wrote it again, about strategy. We're not giving people a list of five exercises that you need to do. But we really want to just help people think about their problem the same way we have to think about them to develop a treatment plan. And we find that as people understand their symptoms better and these impairments, again, it's less scary, more understandable and can help the patient become a more active part of the process versus just having stuff done to them. Um, and on that note too, for physical therapists, a lot of times we were also writing the book for them to understand the same way. And as we went back to so much time and money has to get spent on courses, a lot of conferences have gone virtual this year. 
And because of the time and money it takes to get to places, I think having these online conferences and courses may make them more accessible to PTs. And so to really get some exposure, I would suggest things like Pain Week, of course, the International Pelvic Pain Society meeting, Ishwish, all are going to be online. And so if you don't have to travel and do the hotel, like maybe this is a good opportunity to just expand your brain in a little different way, get exposed to some of the medical things and some more of our physical therapy colleagues as well. And again, as for the patients, I think there's a lot of patient programs online now. So things are, things are happening, hopefully to move things in a better direction. Absolutely. And, and I think, and I'm thinking about it, you know, um, IPPS, so the, the annual um, event came to Toronto. So it was like, okay, yay, you know, and all, all of us, you know, Canadian pelvic PTs were, you know, trying to, you know, uh, attend this because of course, first time in Toronto where we didn't have to travel. And I think, um, you know, certainly one of the pluses to this, you know, to this pandemic has been the fact that um, actually access has gotten a lot easier. Um, the costs have come down, right? Which again, mm -hmm. um, was a barrier to entry. Like, I, you know, I wanted to go to San Diego Pain Summit, but it's like, man, I got flights. I got to get away from my kids and, you know, like do all these things to be able to attend. And I mean, there is something about in-person interaction with your colleagues that, you know, that part you know, was sort of missed. But on the mm -hmm. flip side of that, being able to access, um, you know, um, sort of leaders in the field or, you know, people who are sort of focused in on particular things, I think um, this has done absolute uh, wonders. And I'm certainly, um, you know, looking at doing some additional courses online because um, it's accessible for me now. So, um, so I think that's really great. I want to thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and information um, about this. I mean, I know there's so much more um, and I'm sure your course is really going to be helpful for those clients to get a little bit deeper. I mean, you know, we have an hour. It's very difficult to cover everything we need to know about pudental neuralgia, both from a <laughs> patient and clinician perspective, but hopefully it's given people a little bit more to think about and uh, hopefully given them enough information to ask more questions, mm -hmm. right? To be part exactly. of the process. Um, mm -hmm. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Madeline. It's been fun. Yeah. I, I mean, I know I've certainly learned a lot and I learn from every single guest that's come on here, at least a, like a little piece of something. Uh, so I'm hoping that our um, healthcare providers that are listening are, are getting something out of it as well. And of course, I want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. If you are not subscribed yet, make sure that you do because every week is a different guest and we try to dive a little deeper into some new topic every week. Um, and if you know anybody who has pelvic pain or is a PT that's like in pelvic pain, maybe you can share this episode with them um, to help them along on that journey. And on that note, I say thank you and we'll see you next time on the next episode. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.